All right. There are only two Wednesday nights left in this quarter. And so only two Wednesday nights left for us to address how we got the Bible. Again, uh, starting with the second Wednesday in June, we will have our summer series. We hope you'll make plans to join us for a study of bearing fruit with guest speakers all summer long. I should go ahead and let you know that the first Wednesday of June would normally be a VBS night, and we, so we'd normally have a, a special program then, but VBS is only going to be a one-day event on Saturday, June 5th. So the first Wednesday of June, we're going to have a singing night. I hope you'll make plans to join us as we praise God in song and have an opportunity for some of our uh, young men to uh, lead uh, in preparation for things like Lads to Leaders and such. So please make plans to join us for the first Wednesday in June for that, and then starting the second Wednesday in June, we'll have our summer series. So for tonight and next week, as we draw this study of how we got the Bible to a close, my focus is going to be on English translation. We've been journeying through this study, looking at it from four, uh, through four categories. As we've talked about many times, we focus first on inspiration, Inspiration categorically being a study of how God's Word was communicated from Him to us. <coughs> from there, we then spent a significant amount of time on the category we call transmission, which is how God's Word has been preserved and passed down over the centuries. That probably was the bulk of our study as we focused on manuscripts, as we focused on textual variants and things like that. For the past couple of weeks, we have been focused on the collection of God's Word, how God's Word was collected and canonized into its current form. Tonight and next week, our focus will be on translation, how God's Word was translated from the original languages into English. And mind you, I've only been focused on the New Testament this quarter. I thought I would be able to do both Old and New Testament, but our, our time uh, has required all of its attention just on the New Testament. Um, and so we will conclude with this examination of, ultimately, how we got our English translation of the New Testament. And tonight, to accomplish that, our focus will be first on understanding the English translation of the New Testament, the history of the English translation of the New Testament. Now, not everybody cares too much about history, but sometimes Understanding the history of something helps you better appreciate its existence. And so I'm going to do a, a quick overview of the history of the English Bible, but I want to show this on the screen first. This is an image that I used uh, several weeks back as we were talking about the textual variants that appear in the New Testament. And if you pay attention, the top of this screen uh, you'll notice it's called a timeline of Greek text and manuscripts because we were focused on the Greek text of the New Testament and the, uh, how it came to be developed over time. The top section that, uh, 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 with the rectangles on top of the timeline shows when major uh, manuscripts related to the text of the New Testament were discovered. So some of those major codexes like or codices, like Codex Vaticanus, Codex Alexandrinus, Codex Sinaiticus. It shows when these were found. 
because the majority of our earliest manuscripts that provide the strongest basis for our New Testament translations, those manuscripts weren't discovered until the 16, 17, 1800s. And the Greek New Testament, the Greek text, started being published in the early 1500s. So the bottom colored uh, rectangles show when the Greek New Testament was published for people to see. And you can see, you can see Erasmus, and that red is very hard to read, but Erasmus is the first one to publish for public consumption a Greek text of the New Testament. And he did, the first one he did was in 1516. So we have the Greek text being published, but we're having new discoveries at the same time that are improving that text all the way into the 1900s. I put this on the screen because now we're going to be able to compare this to the development of an English text or an English translation of the New Testament. Now don't forget that the Bible wasn't written in English. The Bible is written in three languages. Hebrew and Aramaic appear in the Old Testament. Greek is the New Testament. So everything we have that is in our language is a translation. Ideally, all of us would go learn Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic so we can read the original text for ourselves. But some of you didn't do so well in Spanish in high school, I bet. And so how much more, so, how much more difficult will it be to go learn Greek? And, and even, even I and Ben and Jay, who have taken Greek courses in college, are not masters of Greek or Hebrew. I know enough to get myself in trouble and convince you that I know what I'm talking about. That's about as much Greek as I really know. And it, so we're working on translations. No matter what, the original biblical languages are the best way to read Scripture, but we are not all able to do that, so we rely on translations. And so let's talk about how the English translations came into existence. Picture on the screen right now is um, an image I got off of Wikipedia of a guy named John Wycliffe. When you talk about English translations, he's the first significant figure to come into play. Now, you have to remember the English language has not always been what it is today. There are periods known as Old English, a period known as Middle English, and a, more, and, a, and a period now known as Modern English. There are some translations of sections of Scripture in Old English and Middle English. John Wycliffe, who lived from about 1320 to 1384, is really the first guy to say, hey, Let's take the text of the Bible and put it into the English language so that everyone who speaks English can read it. Now, John Wycliffe worked with Middle English. Um, he, you and I would not be able to read the translation that John Wycliffe produced easily. There are some portions we could read, but it, it, it's Middle English. It's like reading um, Canterbury Tales. You can do it. It's not easy all the time, but you can do it. So John Wycliffe comes along, and towards the end of his life, with his students and his supporters, 
they produce a translation of the scriptures into English language. And um, that was completed by 1382, roughly. And it is um, significant because that's the first time the entire Bible is produced in an English language. But there is one significant setback with their translation. And that is that John Wycliffe and his uh, contemporaries did not use original languages. They did not use the original Hebrew or the original Greek for the translation of their Bible. When they translated into English, they translated from the Latin texts. You have to remember at this time, what is the dominant church in the world? It's the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church rules in Europe. Not only that, the Roman Catholic Church controls information. And so in that day and age, Latin was the scholarly language. And so most of the, most of the Bibles in possession of the church were in Latin. You didn't have Bibles in your home. That was unheard of. One of the things that really caught my attention is back when Constantine was emperor and he converted to Christianity, he ordered 50 copies of the Bible to be produced by, by uh, oh, and I just lost his name, Eusebius. 50 copies. The emperor of the Roman Empire ordered 50 copies. Bob Canolti will order 50 copies of the Bible any given week of the year. That's not that many copies, but that was significant back when Constantine was emperor to request 50 copies. So we, we have to understand that, that the Bible was not readily accessible like we're used to. And so in this day and age, at the time of John Wycliffe, everything's done in Latin. And he becomes this, this leading voice that says, no, we need to get the Bible in the language of the people. And he becomes the first to uh, really to oversee, initiate, um, take on the task of translating the Bible into English, albeit what we would call Middle English. And unfortunately, he wasn't using the original languages as his source material. But a little bit later comes along this guy, and this guy is sometimes referred to as the father of the English translation. His name is William Tyndall, and William Tyndall lived uh, approximately from 1492, oh, that's a significant year for us, 1492 to 1536. That was not a long life, but that's uh, the time span that he, uh, he was alive, roughly. He was a contemporary of Erasmus. Now, I don't know if you remember Erasmus, but let me back up real quick. To this. And if you notice in the red on the screen, on the bottom left corner, Erasmus is the first guy to publish the Greek text of the New Testament. 1516, Erasmus publishes the Greek text of the New Testament. And Erasmus is a professor at Cambridge around this time. So let me move forward to William Tyndall. He's a contemporary of Erasmus. He goes to Cambridge. I don't think he and Erasmus overlap during, their, during that time, but he goes to Cambridge, he goes to Oxford, he goes to both schools, and he decides that it's his life's mission 
to put or to translate the, the um, text of Scripture from the original Hebrew and the original Greek into English. Now, his predecessor, John Wycliffe, did it, but, but from Latin. Tyndall wants to do it from the original languages. Tyndall believes that that matters. And so he sought permission. He's a member of the clergy. He seeks permission to translate the Bible from Greek into English, but he's denied. It's my understanding that at that time, the Roman Catholic Church believed it would be dangerous to translate the Bible in the language of the people. Why do you think it would be dangerous in their eyes? If you control information, you have power, right? You have to think, we're also on the cusp at this time of William Tyndall's life of a significant event in, in Christian history called the Reformation, where people are going to start parting ways with the Roman Catholic Church and striking out into what is now called Protestant Christianity. Well, William Tyndall seeks permission to translate the Bible from Greek into English. He's denied that permission. He unsuccessfully, he's trying, while living in England, trying to, to do, do these translations, but he's, he himself is persecuted. He himself is, is uh, he, he experiences all kinds of difficulties, so he leaves England. He travels to the continent of Europe. He ends up in Germany. He visits Martin Luther. In 1525, he arrives uh, in the same, he, he meets up with Martin Luther. Luther had recently completed his translation of the Bible into German, and now Tyndall has kind of a support system, if you will. And Tyndall sets about translating the New Testament first into English from Greek. He accomplishes that in 1526. He eventually starts doing portions of the Old Testament. But here's the issue. His English translations of the Greek New Testament have to be smuggled into Britain. And oftentimes they are being uh, confiscated by church officials and burned. His translations don't get very far. So there are copies of them, but that's the, the level of persecution he's facing. 1526, he completes the New Testament, translating it into English from Greek. In 1536, he's captured, he's imprisoned, he's found guilty of heresy, and he's executed because he's opposing the church. William Tyndale's ambition to give the English people a translation of the Bible based not on Latin, but the original Greek and Hebrew, became his chief end in life. He once told an opponent of his, If God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow to know more of the Scripture than thou dost. He believed it was vitally important for anyone and everyone to be able to read Scripture in their own language. And he gave his life to that endeavor. So in 1526, you have William Tyndall translating the New Testament in particular, from Greek into English for the first time. Some of his supporters and, and uh, friends continued his legacy. By 1539, we have the next, the next uh, big significant jump in English translation. Now, there are other English translations 
of the, the Bible occurring between these points that I'm mentioning, these are the big highlights. In 1539, you have the production of what's known as the Great Bible. Now, this is an interesting story. During William Tyndall's life, there is one guy who's king over England. Anybody know who would have been king over England during William Tyndall's life? Who? Nope, he'll come later. Which one? Henry VIII! Henry VIII is king uh, during the life of William Tyndall. Now, what significant event happened in 1534 due to Henry VIII? Say what? He, he wanted a divorce, and because the Pope wouldn't grant it for political reasons, not, it really wasn't religious reasons, which we, we would oppose for theological reasons, but the Pope really had political reasons. But because the Pope wouldn't grant his divorce or annulment, he decided, okay, well, I'm going to take my church and leave. And he started the Church of England. Now, here the Church of England breaks off from Rome in 1534. Now he's got all of these uh, uh, officials within the church, all these clergy members who are former Catholic. He wants a Bible for his church now. You know, they, they're used to the Latin. He now wants to have a Bible in English that they can all get behind. He didn't support Tyndall's translation in part because William Tyndall opposed, audibly uh, opposed in, in writing the divorce of Henry VIII. So he was not a fan of William Tyndall. He wanted a different English translation. So what he does is he authorizes the creation of what will become known as the Great Bible. Um, in, the, the other contributing factor to this is that uh, there are different factions within the Church of England in, this, in the early 1500s, and they all, have a, they, they all feel like the existing English translations weren't good enough. So they keep complaining to Henry VIII, we need a better English translation. And so he authorizes the creation of the Great Bible. The Great Bible received its name because of its great size and format. It was larger than any previous edition, and it was elaborately decorated. And it, and it was big and, and or, ornate because Henry VIII wanted one of every great Bible put in every church in England. That was his goal. Every pulpit in England would have this Bible. And they basically did. So the, the Great Bible was the first of the English Bibles authorized to be read in the churches of England as opposed to a Latin Bible. And so the Great Bible became the church Bible. It was the Bible you would find in the, the church. Now one of the shortcomings of the Great Bible, one of many, was that the sections of the Old Testament that were not uh, previously translated by Tyndall and some other guys were not translated for this Bible from Hebrew. So when they got to the Old Testament, and let's say Tyndall had not translated that section of the Old Testament yet, which he did not complete the Old Testament, but they didn't have an English translation of the Old Testament from Hebrew, you know what they did? Well, let's just go back to that Latin or even a German translation and work from there. 
They didn't use original language on all of the Old Testament. That was one of its key shortcomings, but there were others. The Great Bible of 1539 became the Bible of the churches. But then there's another one that comes along in 1560 called the Geneva Bible. Now, the story is interesting behind the Geneva Bible because in 1560, you have, uh, who is it, Mary reigning over Great Britain. She reinstates Catholicism as the state religion, persecutes Protestants immensely. A large group leave and go to Geneva where they decide, all right, it's time for us to get another Bible going. And uh, they, they, they take on the task of translating a new English Bible while they're in Geneva. Uh, it's estimated that more than 80% of the language in the Geneva Bible actually descends from Tyndall's translation. But the Geneva Bible, it's not supported by the established church. That's part of the mission of it. You know, the Great Bible is sponsored by the Church of England. Here they don't want a church-sponsored Bible. They want a Bible for every man. And what ends up happening is the Geneva Bible becomes the English translation that every household could have. It was the, the, the individual's Bible of the day. And it had some significant contributions, and it had some significant shortcomings as well. Among its key contributions to the translation of the, from, into English, one of, it was the first English New Testament to be divided into verses. Now, verses had been added to the Greek text in 1551 by a guy named Stephanus, and, and some Latin and Hebrew trans, uh, excuse me, Latin and, and Hebrew Bibles did have verses in them, but this is the first one to bring in verses into the English text of the New Testament. Uh, the Geneva Bible was also the first translation to print each verse as its own paragraph. That's not done anymore, but your King James Bible did the same thing. Every verse is its own paragraph. And so the, that, that descended from the Geneva Bible. The other significant contribution of the Geneva Bible is that it italicized words that are, it italicized words in English that are not represented in the original Greek text. In other words, if you come across an idiom in the Greek text and the way it's translated into English requires some words that may not be specifically uh, cited in the Greek, they would italicize that to indicate that this is not directly from the Greek. It is necessary because of the translation from Greek to English. And some translations still do that. Uh, New American Standard still practices that. I believe the New King James still practices that. And so the, the italicizing of words that are not directly descended from a Greek word. The Geneva Bible, um, as far as I understand, was also conveniently sized. It, it, it wasn't large and ornate, and it was cost-effective. Uh, one source I read said it's estimated at no more than a week's wage for the lowest paid laborers. So anybody could afford to get it. But here's something that makes the Geneva Bible unique and problematic at the same time. What makes it significant is that for the very first time, a Bible uh, was produced with scriptural study guides and scriptural aids. It had long prologues on the front end of each book. 
It had chapter summaries. It had marginal notes. It had cross-references. It had all this material in it to help with your study. But here's where the problem comes in. The problem is that the chief translator of the Geneva Bible was the brother-in-law of John Calvin. And so all of the notes, the commentary, and information had heavy Calvinistic teachings. And so it really pushed a specific uh, doctrinal view, a specific uh, denominational perspective. And, And so that is its really significant shortcoming as far as a translation. And that, contributes, that will contribute later to some of the other uh, English translations we'll talk about in just a moment. But what ends up happening is the Geneva Bible becomes the Bible of the everyman. It's the household Bible. While the Great Bible is the church Bible, the Geneva Bible becomes the household Bible. It, and the Geneva Bible went through 140-something different editions. Oh, and something else that I found really interesting is that the Geneva Bible was so popular that it remained the number one household Bible long after the King James Version comes along. It's the, the Geneva Bible was the Bible used by Shakespeare. The Geneva Bible was the Bible of the Jamestown Settlement in Virginia, and it's the Bible that came across on the Mayflower to Plymouth. So it had a significant impact during its time. Now, with the success of the Geneva Bible that came out in 1560, the Church of England decided, okay, guess what? We need to improve that great Bible that's in the pulpit because nobody wants that Bible. They want the Geneva Bible. So they authorized a second version of the Bible, a second English translation of the Bible in 1568. It became known as the Bishop's Bible because some of the individuals who worked on the uh, translation of it, on the preparation of it, were in bishops. Uh, there were eight of them, I believe, that were involved. And ultimately, the Bishop's Bible of 1568 was supposed to just be a revision of the Great Bible from 1539, but uh, those working on it decided there needed to be more updates than, uh, just a, than a revision would allow, so it eventually became known as its own entity, the Bishop's Bible. Now, it never really gained much prominence. The Geneva Bible was so popular that that it couldn't be uh, replaced um, by the Bishop's Bible. But the Bishop's Bible was intended to be the new pulpit Bible, the new Bible of the church. And, uh, it, but it never replaced the popularity of the Geneva Bible. But it is worth mentioning because it had a huge impact on what came next the King James Bible of 1611. Now we're getting to something you're familiar with. All this other stuff I've been mentioning, just so you know that there's a history of English translations that date back as far as the the late 1300s, but particularly throughout the 1500s, you have this influx of English translations, obviously coinciding with the uh, beginnings of Protestant Reformation. As you see... um, this break from the Catholic Church happen, you see this influx of English translations come along because now, and it's not just English that's happening in, in other society too, like, like in Germany with Martin Luther, you have this influx of translations because people want to start having Scripture in their language instead of the Latin that only the clergy can read. 
1611, you have the most significant step in English translation up to that point. You have the creation of the King James Bible. Now, many of you know a lot of the history related to the King James Bible. What you have is a situation where King James is summoned to a, a, a conference, the Hampton Court Conference, a meeting between the Church of England and Puritans. And what's happened is the Puritans take issue with the, uh, some of the teachings and practices of the church, and, and, and they, have a, they have a lot of problems with uh, the lack of religious tolerance in England and how they're treated. And during this conference, one individual proposes that there be a new translation, of an, a new English translation made that is free of the influence of the Church of England and that lacks the Calvinistic teachings of the Geneva Bible. They wanted a fresh new English translation. King James thought that was a great idea. He wasn't a big fan of the previous English translations because nobody was happy with them. So he sponsored, supported this idea of creating a new English translation. And so I believe it's 16, so that, that meeting took place in 1604, if I'm not mistaken. And by 1607, I think it is, they start the process of, this, uh, uh, of these translations. And here's what they did. They got about 48 different scholars together. They put them in, uh, in groups uh, to work on six different groups of translators. Uh, so that would be like eight per group or whatever. They had two groups at Cambridge, and the groups at Cambridge were responsible for translating or, um, First Chronicles through Ecclesiastes as well as the Apocrypha. Then there were two groups who were put together at Oxford, and their job was to deal with Isaiah through Malachi, the Gospels, the Book of Acts, and the Book of Revelation. And then two groups were put together at Westminster to work on Genesis through 2 Kings, as well as Romans through Jude. So these three different locales had two groups at each locale that were working on translating the text. And here's what they do. After they completed a translation of something, they then had to submit their translation to all other groups for approval. This became a significant step in translation because it's not translation by an individual, it's translation by a committee. It's, hey, you have to check my work and make sure I've translated this correctly. I've, I've got to run this past a large, significant group of scholars to make sure that I've done well on this. Now, initially, the King James Bible was actually based on the Bishop's Bible. It was supposed to be a revision of the Bishop's Bible, but it ended up becoming its own, its own translation. So it's, they started with the base of the Bishop's Bible, and the order was, if you, if you come across, you use the Bishop's Bible as the, the basis, if you come across the work of any other English translations that have a, 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 a that are more um, precise to the original language texts, then you can change it. But it was always meant to start with the Bishop's Bible. King James Bible kind of took a life of its own, though, as we've noted. What's so significant about the King James Bible are the advances in translation that it, it promoted. I've already mentioned the whole committee translation 
philosophy, that's one significant step that the King James Bible introduced. Another one is no commentary. In previous translations, as we've talked about with the Geneva Bible and, and, and others, there have been notes and comments from the translators. One of the key principles of the King James Bible was there was to be no comments made by the translators unless what is necessary for translation purposes, but no remarks, no comments, no marginal notes, no commentary, nothing like that. It was just going to be an English translation of the, of the New Testament and the Old Testament. Nothing more, no, nothing less. And when you open up your King James Bible, you feel that. You're not being bombarded with other additional material outside of Scripture with the King James Bible. That was a significant advancement in translation as well. And so the King James Bible comes along, and it makes improvement on translating along those two lines as well as others. And in 1611, it's published. Now, you and I have the King James Bible at our disposal, but we really don't have the 1611 edition. If you went and looked at the 1611 edition, you'd be like, what is this? Do you realize they, 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 they had a revision by 1613? <laughs> but the King James Bible has withstood the test of time for many reasons. One is because of its improvements in translation. Two is because of the beauty of its language. I mean, this, this is the language of Shakespeare that we're talking about. We still, many of us still pray with King James language. The thee and the thou references to God are, are, are from the King James. And so in 1611, you come along and have this translation into English that just changes everything. And do you realize they're going to go about 250 years before there's another English translation considered? Nearly 250 years before there's an attempt to do something else with the English translation of the Bible. Look at how many English translations, and I don't have them all listed, I just have the significant ones listed. How many in the course of a of 100 years, from 1526 to 1611, we have five significant ones up here. There's four or five more that I didn't even mention. And now, after that 100 years of so many English translations, we're going to go 250 before there's consideration of any more. The King James Version deserves credit for that. Now, I'm building up the King James Version right now because I'm going to tear it down later. But I believe, yeah, it deserves its due. It did something significant in an advanced English translation of the Bible. And I, I once heard somebody make the comment that to date, there are more souls probably saved by the King James Version than any other English translation. And I believe that probably would be true right now. Now, leaving this screen, I want to take you to the 20th century. Pictured on the screen are many of the significant major English translations of the Bible since 1900. Now, toward the end of the 1800s, about, I think it was about 1881, they determined in Britain that they needed to, to update the King James Version. 
And so the King James Version was for the longest time known as the authorized version. So in the 1880s, they did some updating to it. I mean, there, like I showed you earlier, there are many manuscripts discovered uh, during the course of the 200 years after the King James translation. And so uh, they have the, these new manuscripts that they can work off of. They, they have the realization that some of the language of the King James is a little bit outdated. So in the 1880s, they do what's called the revised version. In England, it's known as the revised version. It's an update to the King James Version. It's not a new translation. It's just some, some modifications and, and updates. What's interesting is they had uh, several committees involved in the development of the revised version. They also had a committee from America involved in the revised version. The committee from America could make suggestions, but final approval was the committees in England. And what happened in the 1880s is the, the, um, the American committee wanted to make suggestions on spelling, wanted to make suggestions on grammar, things that would uh, be better for an American audience than a British audience. And so what happened is the uh, committees in England said, uh, we'll, put those in, we'll put your suggestions in an appendix if you'll withhold doing any new translations for 14 years. And so the revised version of the, the King James Version came out in the 1880s. And then in 1901, that American committee was finally able to put their version of the King James Version revision out. And so the American Standard Version came out in 1901. Largely, it was a revision of the King James Version. And many of you, or some of you at least, uh, have, your, have had familiarity with the American Standard Version. It gained quite a bit of prominence in the U.S. So 1901, we have the first English translation to an American audience published. That's almost 300 years after the King James Version. That's a lot of time for one English translation to reign. So from 1901, you have to wait until the mid-40s for another translation to come along. And that is the Revised Standard Version, the RSV. Not to be confused with the RV. RV is Revised Version, that's in Britain. RSV is the Revised Standard Version published in the United States. It's in, ultimately, it's somewhat of an update to the American Standard Version, but it is also kind of independent too. But in the 1940s, you have the Revised Standard come out. In the 60s, they go, hey, that American Standard Version was great, but we need to update it improve its language somewhat. So the New American Standard comes out in the 1960s. And you can see it's had several updates. The most recent update to the New American Standard Version was just last year, 2020. The one most people are familiar with nowadays is the 1995 update to the New American Standard, but there is the 2020 update. Then in the 70s, you have the NIV come out. At the end of like 1979, they're like, hey, let's update the King James Version with the New King James Version. And then you have in the 80s and 90s the New Revised Standard, which is an update to the Revised Standard. You have the New Living Translation come out. Uh, in the 2000s, you have the ESV, English Standard Version, come out. And English Standard Version, it's actually color-coded to match the RSV and the NRSV 
because the English Standard Version is actually an update to the Revised Standard Version and the New Revised Standard Version. It's in that same family of translations. And then you have, uh, in the early 2000s, you also have the Holman Christian Standard Bible come out, which is now, I think, called the Christ, just the Christian Standard Bible. There are, other there are other English translations out there, but these are the ones I focused on for this map, or, or sorry, for this diagram. The one thing to notice up there, first half of the 20th century, not a lot of activity on the English tr translation front. You have a couple of translations come out in the first half of the 20th century. Second half of the 20th century, it takes off. And there are m many more English translations that have been produced since then. We are in an era of an abundance of English translations at this time. And what I want to spend the remaining time tonight and next week doing is talking about how to determine which English translation you should be using. Before we get there, I want to read this to you. This passage I'm about to read comes from a, a great little book called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. The very fact that you are reading God's Word in translation means that you are already involved in interpretation. And this is so whether one likes it or not. But to read in translation is not a bad thing. It is simply inevitable. What this does mean, however, is that in a certain sense, the person who reads the Bible only in English is at the mercy of the translator or translators. And the translator or translators have often had to make choices as to what, in fact, the original Hebrew or Greek was really intending to say. The trouble with using only one translation be it ever so good, is that one is thereby committed to the exegetical choices of that translation as the Word of God. What that's saying is, if you just use one translation of the English Bible, you're at the mercy of those translators. If you only ever use one translation, you will always be at the mercy of those translators, trusting that the way they translated it is correct. While it may be um, unfortunate that we don't all know Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic so that we can just turn to the original texts ourselves, we are blessed with this abundance of English translations because we can do compare and contrast. We can look at different translations and be able to go, okay, this says it a little differently than that, and I can compare and contrast, and I can really consider which one is a better representation of what the text is meant to say. And what's great is that we live in the age of technology. Right now, on your cell phone, how many translations of the Bible can you access? You can access a ton. And isn't that... You can, you can access right now on your cell phone the original Greek text, and you can click on each word, and it will pull up the, the definition from a, he, a Hebrew or Greek lexicon, depending on whichever language you're in. You have access to things that, that ministers and Christians a hundred years ago could only dream they had access to. I, I, I think about Brother Clo over here, his preaching years. 
He had the books in the library. That's all he had. He'd have to go grab the lexicon to find the Greek word. He'd have to do the... I, I jump on my computer and I just click on a link and I've got it. I'm, I'm the lazy man preacher in comparison to what Brother Clover would have to do for all those years. We have access to such great information when it comes to translations. You can compare and contrast English translations. You can get an... Um, uh, uh, oh, I've lost the word. But you, you can get a Bible that will possess the Greek in one column and English in the other. You can... You have the tools at your disposal to really investigate Scripture. Do you use them is the ultimate question. Now what I want to do is transition to this. Let's talk about English translations. We're going to do this tonight and next week. When you are selecting the English translation you're going to use, what factors should you be considering? There are four major factors I think you should consider. The first one is this. Who is or who are the translators? How many of you have ever sat down and read the preface to the Bible that you use? Anyone? There we go. We got at least one, two, three. Okay. It's worth reading. Because in the preface, now I, I don't read the preface of hardly anything. But in the, if I buy a book, I'm skipping the preface because I want to get to the content. But in the preface of your Bible, it will tell you a lot about how that translation came into existence, how they made the choices they made. And here's the thing you need to know. You need to know who the translators are. One, you need to know, is it a translator or is it multiple translators? Is it done by an individual or is it done by a committee? Remember, the King James Version made a significant leap in English translation by doing it by committee. Here's the thing about a committee. There are checks and balances when translating. If an individual is doing the translation, he or she or whoever it is can project their own opinions easily, can project their own theological or doctrinal beliefs very easily. But a committee... A committee will challenge translation. A committee will challenge a, a doctrinal bent of some sort. So you want to see if your translation is done by committee or by an individual. Now, I've cited two translations that are done by an individual. Now, you may not know what these abbreviations, they may not all be recognizable to you. MSG, anytime you see that, that's a reference to the message. Now, I'm using the word translation right now, and some of you are like, well, that doesn't count as a translation. We'll get to that one. We'll get to that issue in a, in a little bit. The message and TLB is the living Bible. The message is produced by one individual named Eugene Peterson, and the living Bible is produced by an individual named Kenneth Taylor. Both of these do fall under the category of what we will later call a paraphrase, and we'll explain the difference after a while. But those two translations of the Bible, they're done by one individual each. Nobody's, nobody's checking their accuracy except for the, the only one checking them is their editor to make sure it's going to sell. There's no one checking the accuracy of their translation. Translations done by committee include the King James, the New King James, the New American Standard, the ESV, the NIV, and, and many, and most all others. Most modern translations are done by committee. And the thing you need to know is that 
a committee is preferred over a single translator because the committee will tend to hold one another accountable to the standard of accurate translation. So when you're selecting your translation you're going to use, you really want to consider a translation that has been done by a committee rather than one done by an individual. The other thing worth considering is whether or not the translation you're choosing is associated with a denomination. We don't think about this one as much, but there is not an English translation out there that has been made by members of the Church of Christ exclusively. That's unfortunate. I wish it would happen. But at present, it does not exist among the major translations. I'm sure there are uh, godly biblical scholars out there who have translated for themselves, but they're not mass-produced. There are some translations that do have a denominational tie. For instance, the New Jerusalem Bible or the New American Bible, they're not common to us, but those are associated with the Catholic Church. That's probably why we're not familiar with, with them, because they're not promoted in uh, Protestant circles. So if you go to a Christian bookstore, you're not likely to see these unless it's specifically a Catholic bookstore. And uh, then there's the Holman Christian Standard Bible, or I think it's now being called Christian Standard Bible. It is actually uh, published by Lifeway. Now, Lifeway doesn't exist in a physical brick-and-mortar store anymore, but Lifeway was the publishing arm of the Southern Baptist Convention. And so the Holman Christian Standard Bible uh, is actually printed by the Southern Baptist Convention. Knowing those things, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that's a Bible you should never use. I'm not saying that's a Bible that is uh, fallible in many ways. I'm just saying that the way translation occurs in that Bible could be impacted by the denominational uh, beliefs of its publishers. And so being at least aware of that is important. And it's certainly going to impact the study notes and material that appear in there with it. So you need to be aware of whether or not your translation has a background with a denomination. Think about that Geneva Bible we talked about earlier. The one issue it had and that, that many people noticed is it was very Calvinistic trending. And, and, it's, and the notes in it and the, the, the comments in it were highly um, supportive of Calvinistic teachings. And so you need to be aware of those type things when you're picking out a translation. And so the point is a translation not associated with a particular denomination is preferred because it is less likely to promote a particular doctrinal teaching. So that's something else worth looking at when you deal with picking out a translation. Let me see what the next one is. What is the translation's source material? Now, I probably won't finish this one before we complete our bells tonight, but we'll get started. Source material. When we talk about source material, in large part, we're going back and talking about textual families. Now, this goes back several weeks for us in this study, but you may remember that there are three different textual families among the New Testament manuscripts. The first one is the Alexandrian text type. The Alexandrian textual family is comprised of the oldest manuscripts of the New Testament. And the Alexandrian family of manuscripts is the primary basis for our current Greek New Testament. That was the current Greek New Testament 
is uh, the initials for it are usually NU. The N stands for the Nestle Allend 28th edition of the Greek New Testament, and the U stands for the United Bible Society's 5th edition of the Greek New Testament. Now, you, so you'll come across that NU symbol a lot of times in the footnotes of your Bible. The Alexandrian text type is the basis for the agreed-upon standard Greek text, often referred to as the critical text of the Greek New Testament. The translations that are based on the Alexandrian text type are almost all the major translations because we have now an agreed-upon Greek New Testament and modern translations go to that collection of manuscripts and say that will be the basis for ours. There's only one translation, ultimately, that's going to be affected by this category. We'll get to it in a minute. When we talk about source material, we have the Alexandrian text family. We also have the Western text family. The Western family appears primarily in Latin translations of the Greek New Testament, which were commonly used by the Catholic Church. There is no modern English translation in the, particularly the Protestant realm of Bibles that uses the Western text type. You really don't have to worry about coming across this one. This one dealt mostly with Latin. But then there is the Byzantine text type. The Byzantine family of manuscripts is sometimes referred to as the majority of text, majority text because the majority of manuscripts are of the Byzantine families. Anywhere from 80 to 95 percent of the manuscripts that exist today fall in the Byzantine family. The problem is that the vast majority of them, the vast majority of the Byzantine family, are not early manuscripts. They're very late manuscripts. They, they come from the 9th century or later. And so they are not, the, uh, not as reliable manuscripts. Now, they are the basis. The Byzantine family is the basis for what's known as the Textus Receptus. And the Textus Receptus was the Greek basis for Erasmus publication. And that became the basis for Tyndall's English translation. That became the basis for every English translation through the King James. In fairness, that's all they had. The significant discoveries of Alexandrian manuscripts, such as Codex Vaticanus, Codex Sinaiticus, Codex Alexandrinus, the Bodmir Papyri, the Oxyrhynchus Papyri, the uh, um, John Rylands Papyrus, and the uh, Chester Beatty Papyrus, all these significant discoveries came after 1611. And so the King James did not have access to Alexandrian manuscripts, basically. So it used the best source it had. But now we understand that there are better manuscripts, better Greek, than what the King James had to use. And so it's worth noting that the King James Version is built off of an inferior Greek text than the others. The New King James worked in its, uh, when the New King James came out, it worked to correct some of that, particularly in its footnotes and in, in those things. It tries to explain uh, where there, there are problems, textual variants and things like that. The King James just didn't have that available to it. So when you are choosing a translation, the best practice the best practice of any translation is to be cognizant of the differences 
that exist in textual variants because of these manuscript families. See, a translation's choice of a manuscript family affects whether or not certain textual variants are included, omitted, or acknowledged. We went through several of these textual variants. The ending of Mark, the uh, woman caught in adultery story, the, uh, the uh, confession of the eunuch in Acts chapter 8 and verse 37. We talked about several of these textual variants, and the manuscripts that are chosen as the basis of any Greek text will choose whether or not these are included, excluded, or at least noted. And, like, and the best practice is to be cognizant, is for a translation to be cognizant of the difference of textual variants, and, cons- and, and for us the best practice is to consult more than one translation when studying so that we can ensure we have an accurate understanding of the passage. A translation that does not acknowledge these textual variants, such as the King James Version, it does not even indicate that there's an issue with these texts because it didn't know. It's innocent in the matter, don't get me wrong, but a translation that does not acknowledge these textual variants is, I didn't finish that sentence on there, is less uh, preferred than one that does. So be aware of this as well. Check when you read your preface of a translation, you can find out which, uh, which Greek manuscripts it's using. And you, want to, you really want to know if it's using the Nestle Holland and or the UBS uh, most recent version of those two Greek texts. All right, what's the third one? Oh, translations philosophy. I'm not starting this tonight, and that probably was my last bell. We'll pick up here next week with the translation philosophy and continue our examination of English translations. Thank you for your attention, and let me close out with a quick word of prayer. Heavenly Father, it's an honor together with your family tonight and to um, study. Uh, Lord, as we continue and draw to a close our examination of how we got your word, uh, we ask for your blessings on us so that we can deepen our, our faith in your inspiration, that we can deepen our trust in your word as, as uh, inerrant and as the source of life. And Lord, help us to be able to defend to the world that your word is in fact your word. May we go out from here, Lord, and represent you well and live according to your will. And Lord, we thank you for loving us enough to send your son to die for us. And it is through your son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.